Thanks, Nate. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF Valley. It's good to see you. And again, a special welcome if you are uh, perhaps worshiping with us uh, maybe for the first time today. Uh, we're really glad that you are here. GCF exists to glorify God, and we do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And so to that end, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14. As we continue in our series, we've got about six weeks left in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been tracking with us, that's uh, roughly about 54 sermons. I'm not even going to ask if you've been here for all 54. I haven't been here for all 54. Uh, but I trust that it's been uh, helpful and encouraging. I've grown to... Uh, so love and appreciate the book of Mark in new ways as we have uh, just patiently walked our way through this great gospel. If you're able to, please stand as I read just a couple of verses today, Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 26 and going through verse 31. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Great God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning for ears to <clears throat> hear your word. It is indeed your word, and so because it is your word, it is true, it is right, it is good, it is helpful, but it's also hard and sobering. So, Lord, we need your help. Give us your grace to listen, and not just to hear, but to listen to obey. Whatever you tell us to do, in this life and even in death. Father, I pray for every heart here this morning, including my own. Some of us, Lord, might be here rejoicing. It's been a great week, and we praise God for that. Some of us, Lord, may not be sure why we're here, some of us actually may be here this morning, Lord, and we would rather not be here. So, Lord, we need your grace and your mercy. This is, in fact, the exact place where every one of us needs to be. And so, Lord, we're not here by accident or happenstance. You have drawn us here. You have a work to do in our hearts. And be pleased to do that, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. There are times in our Christian life when we go from the heights to the depths. 
from times of incredible triumph to epic, even abysmal failure. From, from that steely resolve to almost unthinkable, um, unfathomable duplicity. We might start strong only to finish weakly. And everything I just described there, brothers and sisters, can happen in the span of five minutes. And so we wonder what happened. We were here, but this seems like a better spot to be. But how did we get here when this was so much better? Alan, Redpath, and we kind of feel like that. We do. We just feel like crying. <laughs> I get that. I totally relate. <laughs> Alan Redpath was a British pastor, former pastor of historic Moody Church in Chicago. I paraphrased, paraphrased it last week, but he said this, there is no sin that I am not capable of committing five minutes after this worship service is over. And just think about that. Five minutes. That means he hasn't left the building yet. He's still in the sanctuary. He maybe hasn't even got to Fellowship Hall. He hasn't even got to the parking lot yet. It's sobering to think about. But how about 10 minutes after the service? Or how about an hour or how about Sunday night? Or how about on that miserable Monday or Wednesday? What then? It's, it's very sobering, I think, to think about. And what happened here to Peter and the disciples in this text here in Mark chapter 14 often does happen to us in one way or another. We can leave a corporate worship setting like this where I hope that you're already encouraged and the songs have filled your heart and you have a firm trust in the promises of God and maybe you leave here this morning with just a bit more hope than when you came in and then you leave church and then you try and make a left on Sprague. <laughs> I'm not saying that's happened. I'm not saying it hasn't. Or you get home and then you, you begin to engage with your family or you see your neighbor or you get that text from your boss reminding you about that meeting that nobody's looking forward to. In other words, life, this, it continues to unfold. And, and, then, and then we do what we thought was unthinkable just a few minutes before. We reject the Lord in some way. We forsake him in big or small ways. Indeed, our spirit is willing, but our flesh really is weak. Now, I'm not trying to depress anybody here. Certainly not trying to be overly cynical. But I really do want to be honest. And particularly honest as we see this text here in front of us. What happened here with the disciples, it does happen to us all in some way. That thrill of faith so easily can be replaced with the sting of failure. I mean, we can go from feasting with Jesus to failing Jesus. It doesn't even take five minutes. So what are we to learn in our day and our age? What are we to learn as disciples who understand this? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about ourselves in this mostly sad and sorrowful text. What I want to do this morning is simply walk our way through this text. It's actually pretty straightforward, just a couple of verses. I'll make some hopefully helpful observations along the way, and then I want to close with three points of application, really three truths that I trust will be helpful for you and for me as we seek to live faithful, God-honoring lives this week, even 
even when we fail. So here's the scene, having just celebrated God's faithfulness to his old covenant people, and now the establishment of God's new covenant people, the disciples join with Jesus in singing a hymn as they departed this first supper. That is verse 26. Likely this would have been, as we learned last week, one of the Hallel, Hallelujah Psalms, Psalm 116 to 118. And we can just imagine the scene. There, it's a sweet time of rejoicing, of singing, of feasting and worshiping. And they leave, they head out east from Jerusalem to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives that is location of the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane, we'll learn more next week about that, but that is a particularly important location based on what actually goes down there in the last several hours of the earthly life of Jesus. And again, that will be for next week. But it's here in this scene that Jesus makes another startling announcement, verses 27 and 28. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now there is good news and there is bad news for the disciples here. The bad news, as Jesus says, is that you will all fall away. And that phrase, fall away, it's the Greek word scandalizo which means what it, well, we think it means. It's the word from where we get our word scandal. It means to trip up, to, to cause to stumble, to, to entice to sin. Mark uses this word back in Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 6, and in all of those cases, it, it really means the same thing. The disciples would begin to distrust Jesus. They, they would desert Jesus, ultimately denying Jesus, the one, in fact, they say that they trust in and that they are obeying. So what's important here is that this is not a betrayal in the line of Judas or in the sense of Judas. This is not an egregious, sustained rebellion. There are other words that Mark would use, and he uses other words to describe that kind of rebellion. This is a lapse. This is a failure. This is a denial. This is a lack of trust in the king that they say they are trusting in and following. And isn't it interesting? I mean, Jesus, he tells his disciples that he's not surprised at all that they will fail and that they will fall away. Jesus says, it is written. And whenever you see that, brothers and sisters, what, what he means is that a long time ago, the Old Testament scriptures prophesied this exact thing. They prophesied your failure. So we're still in the bad news section here. And Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And it's an amazing prophecy about the good, the great shepherd who would be smitten to death. And as a result, his sheep scattered. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, that prophecy that you're all familiar with as observant Jews, that prophecy that Zachariah is talking about, that's about to be happened here in your midst. That's what's going on here. And brothers and sisters, what we need to understand here, particularly from that prophecy in Zechariah, is that God himself is the one who will cause that to happen. God is the one who will smite and strike 
his own shepherd. And yes, the sheep will all fall away. God the Father will strike his son, the good shepherd, Jesus. So the suffering death of Jesus is divinely ordained. It's divinely sanctioned, and in doing so, yes, the result is that the sheep are scattered like frightened mice. But even when that happens, God the Father striking his own son, the shepherd, even in that, and even as all the sheep are scattered, all hope is not lost. For God will work the greatest possible good in saving sinners. Because a new covenant people will be established. The creation of a new people of God is in fact the result. That is the good news. Verse 28. Jesus says after, after he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he will emerge victorious on the other side. He will be proven to be the conquering king, the true Messiah. He'll be raised up in the glory of the resurrection. And he would be there then to lead his disciples through their valley of death. Which means that that's what he's going to do for you. He's going to lead you as your victorious and conquering king through the valley of your own death. And so here we see, brothers and sisters, in the midst of abysmal failure, deep failure on the disciples' part, they're all going to fall away. There is great hope. There's hope of restoration. There's the very real promise of the resurrection because Jesus is the chief shepherd who is on the other side as our true and conquering king, and he will continue to shepherd his people all the way to the end, to the glorious end. I don't know what week you had last week. I don't know maybe some of the failures that you're going to have this next week. But here's what I can say based on this text and all of God's word. If Jesus is involved, there is always hope. If Jesus is involved, there's always, always, always hope. Now, it seems like the disciples only heard part of what Jesus is saying. They kind of only heard the part, the hard part. You're all going to fall away. Now, you would think given those very sobering words, whew, that would be the time for some honest reflection, sincere deliberation, earnest contemplation. Instead, Peter speaks. <laughs> Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, not me, I will not. Peter looks around at all of his other fellow disciples. And I can imagine him saying, Lord, you, you know what you're dealing with here. That guy's a wimp. That guy doesn't say anything. Can't count on that guy, but not me, Lord. I got your back. You can count on me, Lord. And you can imagine the other disciples hearing that. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate your ministry. They're not exactly thrilled either. And so Peter's arrogance here is, is really only, only matched by his impetuousness. 
He just can't help himself. I remember years ago being at a pastor's conference and hearing a very seasoned pastor uh, say that he, he, when, especially with new converts and, and just folks who are really zealous, and that, that can be a wonderful thing, but in his years of pastoral ministry, he often thought, you know, I, I get a little antsy when new converts or new believers, they, they kind of start boasting because they just don't have that track record. They're inevitably going to say things that they regret. It's going to kind of come back. Perhaps you remember if you're as old as I am, that chorus, probably in the 70s, maybe out of the 60s, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. You can hum it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, yes, no, yes, I am staking my flag here. I'm following Jesus. No turning back. But I remember this pastor saying, you know what? That he would prefer something a little bit different. Like, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus, but this is going to be hard. I know I can't do it alone. I need God's grace even to persevere when I fail because I will. Now, it's kind of hard to sing that. But that's true to our experience, isn't it? And so Jesus here replies to Peter's bravado and his pride with an equally stunning statement, verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now we might hope, we might think that, that maybe that would cause Peter just to contemplate, to think. Just let that land, Pete. Jesus is giving him another opportunity here to take seriously his words, to consider. What does Peter do? He actually doubles down on his self-confidence. Peter actually raises the stakes, verse 31, but he, that's Peter, says emphatically, you know what that means, very loudly. If I must die with you, mm -mm, I will not deny you. And then we have this phrase, and they all said the same. I mean, the band is back together. Apparently, the disciples are just so caught up in this outward show of frenzy and loyalty and confidence. They want to make sure that Jesus knows, oh, it's not just Peter here. No, no. We will not fail you, Jesus. You can absolutely count on us. We talked about it. We're willing to die for you. Now, we know, having looked back, we can put the pieces together. At this point, what did the disciples really mean? Seems clear that that they were thinking here, well, yeah, of course, we're willing to die for you, Jesus. They're looking for that messianic war, that Jesus is going to lead them, he's going to defeat the Romans, he's going to free them from occupation, and they will have power. We're willing to die for you there, Jesus. What they're not thinking about is, no, 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 dying for Jesus means in solidarity to the gospel, to the gospel, and the spread of the gospel message. They didn't quite get that part, at least not yet. But it's interesting, for, for all of their arrogance and overconfidence, the disciples are actually not completely wrong. Because as history records it, one day they will all die for Jesus. Every last one of them, with the exception of John, who died in exile on the island of Patmos, they all died a martyr's death. They died refusing to say anything except that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He is the true King, the true Messiah, and there is no salvation apart from Him. They all did die for the good news. But we're just not there yet. 
Here, in this scene, there's a lot of pride, a lot of self-assurance, and it's all very short-lived. So we'll see next week. Their spirit, though willing, was oh so weak. Not unlike you and me. And so we have here a pretty simple, pretty straightforward story. Pretty sad story. Because the disciples go from feasting with Jesus and in the next instance they're failing him. They're singing a song and then they're abandoning him. They're rejoicing with Jesus and then they reject him. Church, no one has ever been treated with such disregard and disdain and disrespect and distrust than Jesus. And this was from his own friends. This was from his own, this was, these were not his enemies. These are his closest friends. And yet when you zero in on Jesus here, isn't it interesting what you don't see? There's no bitterness in him. Not a trace of it. Where you and I would expect buckets of it. Can we be honest? Because that's oftentimes what is the first thought for us. This is kind of how our world works. You hurt me, I hurt you. You reject me, I reject you. You fail me, I abandon you, I walk out. I'm done. That's not the good news of the gospel, is it? In fact, the gospel message says that the very one that we have offended with our sins, he's the one that takes our offense on himself. He absorbs that. He absorbs our punishment that we deserve. Islam has no answer. Buddhism has no category for this. Secular humanism cannot offer up a better savior. The fact that Jesus took our sins upon himself, was crucified, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve, and that he did not stay dead, that he rose gloriously, defeating sin, death, and Satan. You know what that means? It means Christianity is true. And it means then that the gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation for every last person who believes. There is no truth apart from that. So what can we then, as disciples, it's 2023, what are we supposed to learn from this then? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about ourselves that can actually be helpful this week because here's the truth. We may fail him this week in some way. We're going to forsake him. There's going to be a lapse. We're going to have some regrets. We need to know how to deal with this. Three truths then. Truth number one. Followers of Jesus remain in constant and continual need of change. In other words, as disciples of Jesus, we gather like this, we go to home group, we we're in Bible studies. Why? Because we know that we still need to change. We need to grow. We want to mature as disciples, to grow in grace. At this point, Peter and the disciples had followed Jesus now for the better part of three years. And they saw Jesus perform miracles. They, 
They saw him teach the crowds. They watched him as he prayed. These disciples were eyewitnesses of some of the more profound moments that a human being like you and I could possibly experience and comprehend. And yet, as we learn here, and we will see next week, there was still a whole lot more to learn. They didn't quite get it. We would say that there are still a whole bunch of gospel disconnects in their heart that would need to be sorted out. I actually find a great deal of encouragement in that. I hope you do as well, because what that means then, church, is that disciples are not made in one Sunday. Disciples of Jesus are not matured overnight. It's a long process. It's a lifelong pursuit. I want you to go to home group faithfully. That's good. One year of participation in home group doesn't mean that you've arrived. Not by a long shot. Because real change, the transformation of our hearts, the the good work that God wants to do, it's going to take some time. Because none of us change as quickly as we want to. Because we're all far more stubborn than we want to admit. And because there are, there's a hardness in our hearts that the Lord needs to really work with us on. And so the one thing we can know as disciples of Jesus is that there's never going to be a point this side of eternity where we say, you know what? Oh, I got it. I'm good. I've arrived. Thanks for all the help. I'll pray for you now to be where I'm at. No, not at all. I remember this Monday night counseling appointment very well. I was meeting with a couple for marriage counseling. And I remember thinking two things. Number one, I'm not sure that we're making much progress here. This is maybe three or four sessions in. And number two, I don't really know what to do. And so there was kind of a heaviness just in my own heart as I approached this next meeting. And so I genuinely really cared about these folks. And, but as I looked back over my notes and I, I saw that we were really spending a whole lot of time just voicing, them voicing all the issues, all the challenges, all the problems in their marriage. And I looked over my notes and I tend to write stuff down. I circle stuff. You can talk to Dave Lundberg on this. I, I scribble stuff. And there was just a lot of that. And as it's true in most marriages, it's never just one thing. It's a constellation of kind of a whole bunch of sticky, thorny things that can be overwhelming. So towards the end of this particular session, again, listening and hearing and interacting, it's at that point that the wife paused, and she looked at her husband. I could see that tears were welling in her eyes. And she said, I don't know what to do, but I know I need inside of me to change. I know I need inside of me to change. And so we just let that land. It was kind of one of those divinely ordained moments where nobody needs to speak. And the Lord was gracious. We waited for a bit in silence. And then slowly the husband turned and looked at her, and he said, me too. I need inside of me to change. And by God's grace, over the next several months, slowly, almost imperceptibly, but definitively, that's exactly what happened. 
inside of them did begin to change as the Holy Spirit brought both his conviction and his comfort. Brothers and sisters, we've seen it in our studies here in Mark. We've seen it as we look at the Gospels, all four of them. Jesus delights to change sinners. In fact, Jesus leaves a trail of mercy behind him for all who would follow after him. Oh, you're a blind beggar? You're infested with demons? You sell your body for money? You're the town drunk? Oh, you're super religious? You know the Torah front and back, but you have no idea who I am? Oh, great. Hi, I'm Jesus. Nice to meet you. Let's chat. And the next thing you know, huge, life-dominating sins are forgiven. And people are on their feet again, having been made right with the God that they have offended. And they begin to take the initial steps of a transformed life. They begin to walk that out with, with a new heart, a transformed heart. They begin to live with a new identity and with a joy and a purpose that they, they could not have known before. So if the clock is still ticking this morning, and look at that, it is, then you and I still have time to turn to Jesus and be changed. And if your prayer this morning is, Lord, I need inside of me. I need inside of me to change. Then you are on the right path. We want to help you stay on that path and encourage you to stay on that path. Don't divert from that path but you're on the path of truly being changed and maturing as his disciple. That's the first truth. Here's the second truth. Truth number two. You are taller when you kneel before Jesus and receive his grace. You are taller, you are stronger when you submit, when you bend the knee to Jesus and receive his grace. Peter says, Lord, you can count on me. Even if I'm the only one left standing, even if all those other guys, they fall down, I'm going to be standing, I won't let you down, I won't deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Lord, we're with Peter. We're still a little shaky on that guy, but we're going to stand with you, Lord. You can count on us. And of course, they said this out of their self-will, it came from wanting their will, their agenda, their control. Ultimately, they're saying, well, we got this from our own power. And so they are suffering from a very common malady. It affects all of us. It's an inflated view of ourselves. Oftentimes so inflated and puffed up that yes, when life gets really hard or confusing or when we do fail and fall, it seems far easier to run from Jesus than to run to Jesus. And so what we see, brothers and sisters, is that the profound truth of Scripture, really from Genesis 3 on, is that I stand taller when I kneel before Jesus and when I open up myself to receive His grace, His help. I stand taller when I bend the knee in sincere submission to Jesus Christ 
and receive his grace and his mercy. Now, in many ways, that's the complete opposite of, of what we hear, isn't it? Why would you ever want to, why would you bend the knee to anybody or anything outside of yourself? You are your own authority. You get to determine the course of your life. You are the ultimate authority. Do what's good for you, and on and on the lies go. You are smaller. You become smaller when you kneel. Now, there is truth in that. So, in one sense, the world's right here. You and I are smaller when we kneel before that favorite idol. We become smaller. You become smaller when you kneel to lies or half-truths. You and I become smaller when we hold a grudge. We withhold forgiveness. We exact revenge and lash out in anger. Yes, our sins, they make us smaller. But if you kneel to King Jesus and receive His grace, you become taller. And what our world needs, what our families need, what this church needs is taller men and taller women. So guys, you want to lead your family to Christ? You want to grow in grace? I know many of you too. And I share that. How are you going to do that apart from Jesus? Are you going to trust in your own wisdom? That's only going to take you so far and not nearly far enough. So perhaps the first move this week, guys, if you say, Lord, I, I want to learn, I want to know how to lead my family better, then that means you've got to get on your knees because that's when you're taller and receive from the Lord his grace. Maybe the cares, women, maybe the, the cares of this world are becoming your whole world. Well, you are taller when you give those to the Lord. You're taller when you kneel before Jesus and receive his grace. Students, man, I love you guys. It's super hard. There's a lot going on in your life, junior high, senior high, maybe you're a college student. Pressures to conform, pressures to perform. Tons of pressures to fit in, and then a whole lot of other pressures that say, no, I have to be unique, I gotta distance myself. Challenges are real. You stand taller, you're stronger when you kneel before King Jesus and receive his grace. So yes, brothers and sisters, the way up is in fact the way down. That's truth number two, here's truth number three. In Christ, our failures need not be final. If we're united to Christ by faith, our failures, and in certain seasons, there are many, they're neat. they don't need to be final. We'll see next week for Judas, they were. Why? Judas refused to repent. Judas refused to bend the knee. Peter's failures, not final. Terrible, but not final. All the other disciples, they all fell away. Not final. Your failures and sins and mine, equally terrible, but not final. Assuming we repent and continue to persevere and obey and follow Jesus Christ. 
No doubt Jesus was saddened by Peter's imminent failure. He understood that. He understood that far better than Peter and the disciples did. And even as he made this startling prediction, his heart is heavy with grief. But even though saddened, Jesus was not surprised and he was not shocked by the failure of his disciples. He didn't overestimate their abilities at all. You know, you read the book of Acts, there's wonderful things. Lord willing, at some point we'll do a, we're going to walk our way through that whole book. But you read that and you think then, and this has been said by others, but really a local church like ours, who are we? Well, we're many things. But at the, not the least of which, we are the fellowship of the forgiven. That's who we are as a local church. We are the fellowship of the forgiven. And again, you read the book of Acts, you realize we're also the fellowship of the frail. Every time I read the book of Acts, I was doing that this last week, I come away amazed. I've said this before. It is amazing that the local church, those fledgling little group of believers, they made it out of Acts chapter 2. Persecution, hardship, heretics, sin. And yet here we are, the church of Jesus Christ endures and will. Praise God. It's amazing. But if you're here and you know that you're a sinner, if you're here and you know that you, oftentimes you fail Jesus, you don't live up to your commitments. Yes, oftentimes you speak the truth, what is true, and then fail to follow up and act in the same way. I just want to say welcome home. Really glad you're here. This is where you need to be. This is the fellowship of the forgiven. Whatever your sins are this past week and whatever sins you may commit this next week, I want you to be here next week and the week after that and the week after that as we gather the fellowship of the forgiven. Amen? Now, it's easy, I think, for us to overlook sometimes the, the failure and the frailties of, of our heroes Maybe you got some in Scripture, wonderful, and if you've read a lot of church history, church history is replete with fallen people, all of them, even our heroes. Martin Luther's anti-Semitic comments don't exactly inspire us to defend the gospel. John Wesley's failure to be a loving husband, it's well documented, that doesn't exactly make us want to pray for revival. Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, died in 1556. Unfortunately for him, he's never going to have the luxury of having his failures overlooked. He's a complicated man. His life and death, very complicated. In many ways, Cranmer was a walking contradiction. Welcome. But as a faithful pastor, Cranmer slowly brought reform to the church of England. He wrote many sermons and letters. He actually wrote the first two editions of the Book of Common Prayer. And he followed Luther's lead in the English Reformation. He taught about the true gospel, about how to read your Bible, that justification by faith alone was, in fact, true. But then Mary, that would be bloody Mary, took the English throne, and just like that, his influence and reforms basically halted. Mary reversed the English Reformation, started burning Protestants at the stake. All those who didn't agree with her, in fact, and Cranmer 
gave way to that pressure. He recanted, turned his back on Jesus, and in fact, the true gospel submitted to papal authority. In the furnace of his affliction, he miserably failed. He, in fact, recanted all of his life's labors, the true gospel. And so later on then in January and February of 1556, after all of these private recantations of his Protestant beliefs, he's required to explain himself, which he does at the University Church in Oxford. Queen Mary is there. All the important people in England. And in that setting, much to their surprise, Thomas Cranmer gets up and now publicly denounces all of his private recantations. He denies papal authority. He says justification by faith is true. And I know you're about to kill me. And that's exactly what happened. But interestingly enough, he said that he would willingly die for the true gospel but that he would punish his own hand first that originally signed those recantations by sticking his own hand in the fire first. And that's what he did. Stuck his hand in the fire first, died as a mitre, uh, as a martyr, crying out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Complicated guy in life and death. He didn't exactly die abandoning the faith, of course, but his behavior leading up to his death doesn't exactly say, that's the guy that we want to follow. He's a hero. But I actually happen to think his story is, I think it mirrors many ordinary Christian stories. For us, we live with regrets and failures, shame. We wish we had taken a stronger stance here. We wish we had given more grace here. All of us could do without backtracking and more backbone. And I think you'd agree, praise God, that none of us have entire reformations on the Monday morning calendar, hanging on our daily decisions. But like Cranmer, our failures, whatever they may be, brothers and sisters, need not be final. Why? Because we look to Christ, who is our assurance, who is our security. And yes, as we own up to our sin, we repent of it. We turn. And what happens? We are forgiven. Forgiveness is the game changer. Huge. Jesus says here, verse 27, it is written, the sheep will be scattered and we see that, and we'll see that over the weeks to come here as we finish up this series. But you know what's also written? It is written that God will supply all of your needs according to the riches of Jesus Christ, Philippians 4.19. It is written that Christ will build his church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail, Matthew 16. It is written that he will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13. It is written that you can cast all of your cares on him, 1 Peter 5. It is written that he will be with you even in the midst of your great trials, Isaiah 43. It is written that everything that happens works 
for the ultimate good, ultimate good of those who belong to him and who love him, Romans 8. It is written that he will complete the work that he has already begun in you, Philippians 1. It is written that he will do what he has called you for, 1 Thessalonians 5. It is written that he can keep you from stumbling. And he's the only one that can present you faultless before his throne, Jude 24. So when you are anxious about the progress and effectiveness of God's word and his work through his word... Remember, it is written that his word will not return empty and void. It will accomplish what he purposes. Isaiah 55. And when you face the darkness of sickness and death, remember, it is written that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in him will live for eternity. John 11. There's a lot that's written in this book, isn't there? And praise God, because it's true. Every last word. You can bank your life on it. The Lord will continue to be our shepherd, and one day, yes, he will regather us for himself. If I were introducing Christianity to the world, and praise God, I'm not. But but if I were doing that, as Mark does here, this is an ancient biography of the true king. We've seen that. But if I were in charge of of doing that, I I would not include a story like this one for people to know. Pretty sure I wouldn't include next week as well. I wouldn't want anyone to know about the epic failure of disciples who are among the inner circle of Jesus, his closest friends and confidants. Let's not talk about the ugly stuff. Let's keep it positive. Let's just ignore that stuff. Now, you may be here this morning and thinking, exactly, totally agree. That's why I could never become a Christian. There's way too many hypocrites. You Christians, you don't practice what you preach. And you're right. Maybe you have had other Christians in your life that that have failed you. Well, you need to know, my friend, that we Christians will give an account to God for our hypocrisy. Yes, for all of our failures. But you also need to know that you too will give an account to God. You will have to answer to God for all of your rebellion against him. And unless you have put your faith in this Jesus, the true king, then that day of judgment will be a terrible and awful day for you. Is there any good news? You can be forgiven of all of your sins, whatever the weight that you came into this place with this morning because you're trying to figure out how do I deal with me? How does inside of me change? Look to Christ. Repent of your sins. Humble yourself. Trust in the true king who died and now lives for you. So, friend, you, you and I have a lot in common. We both fail to live exactly as we profess. But I do know what it is to be truly forgiven. And I would pray that you would know that this day as well. As Christians, life can get hard. It can get confusing really fast, just like that. 
and our rejoicing and feasting with Jesus suddenly turns into sometimes pretty big failure. And at that point, all hope is not lost. You're not done. It's not over. Not by a long shot. Because Jesus, who died for you, rose from the dead. And even in your moments of worst failure, the stuff that you don't talk about, even in that moment, Jesus lives to intercede for you. Hebrews 7. He's the God that you need. So don't stop running to him. Don't stop believing in him. Ask him even for more grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering text. It's sad in many ways. So Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious with every heart here today. I pray that you would find among your people here soft hearts, sensitive hearts. Yes, who, who take seriously sin and failures, Lord, but do that in the context of your great grace, your mercy. Lord, indeed, if, if you didn't leave a trail of mercy flowing from the cross, we would have zero hope. But you have, and you did. And so it's up to us to receive that. Open up our hearts wide, I pray, to do just that. In Jesus' name.